It was a sultry July night in Paris as hosts France prepared to take on Portugal in the final of Euro 2016. It is the 15th European Championship final. France are in their third. They won the other two. For Portugal, it's a second. The Stade de France was buzzing. Its lush green pitch glistened under the floodlights. In one half stood Ronaldo, chest forward, hair slicked back. Opposite him was France's very own grinning sharpshooter, Antoine Griezmann. But before a ball had even been kicked, these footballing giants had been upstaged by beasts of a different variety. Thousands of silver-wide moths, about the size of a human hand, were emerging from the turf, annoying the crowd, worrying the officials and distracting the players. One even landed right on the bridge of Ronaldo's nose. As the disturbance threatened to overshadow the tournament finale, the story spread that the insects had arrived overnight and burrowed into the Parisian soil. One theory, as repeated by the BBC's Gary Lineker, was that a member of the ground staff had left the floodlights on overnight. We're not the only ones who uh, want to flutter on this particular game because uh, there's been a moth infestation <laughs> at the Stade de France and um, they're all over the place. Apparently they left the lights on last night and it's, um, it's, not, <laughs> it's not been well received. <laughs> there's thousands of the things. Um, they're currently trying to do something um, about it and um, well, they need footballs and mothballs this evening, <laughs> I, th I th think. I'm not sure what they Hopefully they'll clear them before they uh, get round to kicking off. In charge of the pitch that day was a man his colleagues called Anthony, and he disagreed with Lineker's verdict. It's always the groundsman's fault. No matter what goes off, we get blamed first. Yeah, Anthony isn't from Paris, nor even from France. He's actually Tony from Yorkshire, and he doesn't speak a word of French. So how did he end up running the show at the Stade de France? What were the moths doing there? And just how true is the stereotype about grumpy groundsmen? Get your facts right before you blame people. This is Unsung. Introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. We'll look beyond the headlines and behind the athletes to shine a rare spotlight on the integral men and women in the shadows interwoven in the fabric of sport. This week, we're featuring Football Ground Star. Written and narrated by Alexis James, this episode is called Coup de Grasse. The grumpy groundsmen turn turf revolutionaries. Long before Tony was put in charge of the most important sporting venue in France, he was minding pitches for Barnsley Council, attending to cricket squares, bowling greens and golf courses. It didn't take long before this grafter with a passion for pitches got the gig at Oakwell Stadium, the 19th century home of Barnsley Football Club. One of the few remaining grounds to have its floodlights on corner pylons, its design and architecture exudes old school British charm. A bit like Tony. Thick set, shaven headed and tracksuited, Tony seems to be the archetypal groundsman. The say it as I see it, get off my pitch type. Cut him and he bleeds grass. You live this job. When, when you're a head groundsman, you live it. It's a lifestyle, not a career. You live the job. With over 30 years in the game, 
Tony remembers some of the tricks of the trade that underdogs like Barnsley used to use. Smaller pitches, longer grass, uneven cuts, overwatered, underwatered. In football, when there is a gulfing class between teams, one way to ensure an even playing field is to face each other on an uneven one. Manager used to ask us to keep it long in tick corners. Dave Bassett always wanted it a little bit longer in corners, just so that winger he could ping it into a winger and winger had a chance to catch up and, and get ball in. Once at Oakwell, Tony was even cited by a beady-eyed fan for watering only half of the pitch. And any time that I'd watered one end more than the other, and it just happened to be the end that we were attacking. So he's like, oh yeah, you're making it wetter and slicker for your forwards to go on and, and, and win game. Which weren't very funny at the time, but it's what you do to try and make it right and then you get you get done for trying to bloody match fix and it's like, well, I'm not match fixing, I'm just watering pitches as, as I see it needs doing. The accusation prompted a football league inquiry, but Tony had an explanation ready. It's because it's more windy that side and south side's bloody covered in. But where dark arts brew, confrontation is conjured. Top managers like Arsene Wenger would regularly cry foul about some of the turf tactics being used by the likes of Stoke City, who would deliberately squeeze a pitch to its minimum width in order to stifle the opposition with long balls and longer throws. Managers give orders to their groundsmen sometimes, don't cut the grass because he played against a team who passes the ball well, and we have to be above that. And uh, it's quite uh, sad that we have to uh, regulate it. And I think we have all just to serve people who come and watch good football. But to ground staff working on a manager's orders in a bid to help their team, Agro comes with the territory. And so the long-established trope about grumpy groundsmen is not entirely without merit. Put it this way, there's a reason Tony's nickname is Thunder Shorts. At over six feet tall and with a pitchfork in hand, it would take a brave person to get on the wrong side of him. But several have. Like a certain Plymouth Argyle fitness coach, whose sprint drills weren't welcomed by the grounds team nor the notoriously uncompromising Barnsley captain, Chris Morgan. Plymouth Argyle, it were. We nicknamed him Blue Gloves because he were an arse and he always wore blue gloves. And he had this absolutely horrendous warm-up. I remember Chris Morgan were injured and he was saying to me, come on, Tony, you can't fucking let him do that. I said, Chris, I've already had a chat with him, he'll not fucking listen to me. So then obviously Morgan's got involved and then we were both at him and he's like, well, I'm warming up, yeah, but you're destroying this fucking pitch. And then Morgan were... Mogs were going down, he were stood outside the wall and it, it all got a bit carried away. And Mog wears his heart on his sleeve like me, so you've got to know when you've took it to a point of, OK, that's it, I've got to walk away from this or it's going to get a bit naughty. Thanks to modern technology, there is an easier, less confrontational and much funnier way of keeping intruders off the pitch. A technique straight from a carry-on movie. The sixth sense, when you're a groundsman, it's the sixth sense, you know somebody's at pitch side. And then, of course, now with, with cameras, you can have a you can have a webcam straight to your phone, so you've got 24-hour access, and you can definitely see when there's Sunday next step pitch. Then, if all else fails, because you've got remote control irrigation, you see somebody stood outside a pitch, and you go, oh, they're a bit near them. I'll just pop that irrigation head up and wet them." <laughs> Sometimes you ask people nicely, and they don't listen. Tony's success in the Football League saw England come calling, and Tony was handed the dream opportunity to become head groundsman at Wembley, the most sacred surface in Sutter. For a groundsman, it should have been the best job in sport. Should have been.
Dawson slips, so the pitch has had something to do with it again on the goal. Dawson goes down, and Piquion just fires it right through Gomez's legs before he can even get set to deal with it. When Tony arrived at Wembley in 2009, a pitch that was for decades renowned for being the plushest lawn in the land was close to becoming a national disgrace. Despite the new £750 million stadium being on the same site as the original, what was once a hallowed turf had become a hollow one. At that time, Wembley were getting absolutely hammered in the press. To the stage when I worked my first year there, we never we never bought a newspaper because it were always something bad about us. There'd be photos of us divoting with buckets, putting, putting grass in, in buckets, divots in buckets. There'd just be absolute spiel about our bad pitches. Not the fact that it was just debris, but no matter what we did, it were always getting hammered. Intended as the permanent home of football, its sand and soil pitch struggled with its multi-purpose role as an ad hoc base to everyone from Lady Gaga to Tom Brady. Big name managers including Alex Ferguson, Fabio Capello, and of course, Arsene Wenger, lamented a surface as stable as a toddler's ball pool. When Tottenham defender Michael Dawson slipped in the 2010 FA Cup semi-final, handing Portsmouth a place in the final, Spurs boss Harry Redknapp made his feelings clear. Unfortunately, you know, it was a costly slip on a terrible pitch that is a disgrace for anybody to play on, but that's not an excuse for, for not for, for getting beat today, but it is a poor pitch for professional players who have to play on a stadium like this. Tony remembered that Portsmouth team well, for when the final came, they had every intention of using the choppy pitch to their advantage. On the eve of the FA Cup final against Premier League champions Chelsea, Avram Grant's Portsmouth side trained for 90 minutes on the turf. Then, they finished the session with penalty practice. Tony was incensed. Portsmouth Chelsea, they said they could train up pitch the day before, which nearly made me cry. Because <laughs> anybody who knows what in groundsmanship, if you let the underdogs train first, they're going to chew it over for because that's going to give them advantage to make pitch a bit bobbly. So Portsmouth came and hammered it and did a penalty shootout. Peter Jack came on and said, why am I playing on potato field? So like nine o'clock at night, day before cup final, we're, we're taking a metre square slab of turf from behind goal and putting it in penalty spot. And you sat the whole game with your head in your hands playing, please no penalties they send. <laughs> please. After replacing the butchered turf, Tony endured a sleepless night, praying that no spot kicks would be awarded. The last thing he and Wembley needed was the FA Cup being decided by shifting sands. Unfortunately for him, his appeals went unheard, and the next day, referee Chris Foy pointed to the spot. Twice. Aruna Dintan, Scott beyond Belletti. Dintan goes down, penalty! The first penalty went to Portsmouth, at the opposite end to where the turf had been cut up. But in an act of karmic comeuppance, Kevin Prince Boateng scuffed his shot and allowed Czech to save with his legs. Boateng, saved by Czech! The second penalty went to Chelsea, and Tony could barely watch as the ever dependable Frank Lampard placed his ball on the replacement grass. And then all of a sudden, oh, Frank Lampard's got a penalty. <laughs> and you sat there and your ass is going like that. Oh my God, please don't move. Frank Lampard have got the winner in last season's FA Cup final. There's a chance to clinch victory in this season's. And he's missed it. Two penalties missed. 
in an FA Cup final. That's never happened before. Only a match-winning free kick from Didier Drogba allowed Tony to emerge from his office without worrying about more headlines. That subpar FA Cup surface was Wembley's 11th relayed pitch in three years. Tony was under pressure. Football isn't just a ruthless business for coaching and playing staff. Steve Welsh, Tony's predecessor at Wembley, was sacked following the well-publicised issues despite being a former groundsman of the year. Something needed to be done, especially as the home of English football was set to host the Champions League final the following year and the Olympics after that. Pressure from those sporting governing bodies was the factor that eventually told. Champions League wanted guarantees that the pitch were going to be good. And obviously we've got Olympics coming up as well, which we had nine games in 12 days. So tournament football is difficult. Wembley and Tony turned to technology. The solution was to install a hybrid pitch. These aren't the infamous plastic surfaces seen in the late 1980s. Trampoline turfs like those at QPR, Luton, Preston and Oldham were banned in 1995. Today's synthetic pitches are more sophisticated, strengthening the natural grass rather than replacing it. A reported quarter of a million was spent to install a Deso Grassmaster system first used by Huddersfield in 1997. And hearing Tony talk about it is like listening to a kid talk about his favourite Xbox game. I always have this scenario saying, if you have a concrete pillar, we know steel work in it. It's easy to kick, you can virtually kick it over. You put steel rods in it, it becomes solid, doesn't it? And this is what Grassmaster does for playing surfaces. Where everybody's like, oh, they're playing on plastic. No, they're playing on real grass, the plastic's underneath doing the reinforcement. It just makes it, it just makes it harder to take a divot. After six months, that pitch were amazing when we went Grassmaster, that you were never talked about again. Crucially, for multi-purpose stadia like Wembley, Hybrid technology reduces the headaches that used to come with pitch-destroying gigs and events. Rather than having to completely re-turf, ground staff simply take off the top two centimetres of grass and reseed among the plastic fibres. Thanks to 24-7 lightning rigs, the pitch can be back to its cup final best within days. My last year at Wembley, so we did football, then we did rugby league, straight into rugby union, back-to-back, Saturday-Saturday Rugby World Cup. Seven days after, we did NFL. Four days after that, we did Football England. It just gives it that versatility to be able to do any sport you want with minimal damage. And so, when another of Europe's leading stadia decided it was time to follow Wembley's lead in the synthetic revolution, they knew exactly who to call. And before long, Tony was booking a weekly seat on the Eurostar. Tony is one of several British turf pros who've been headhunted by the biggest stadia in Europe. The pitches at Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain may be foreign fields, but, to butcher Rupert Brooks' poem, those growing them are forever England. And that's because when it comes to innovation, modernisation and turf industry revolution, it's the UK leading the way. At Leicester City's state-of-the-art training ground in rural Seagrave, you'll find the world's first ever sports turf academy. Opened in 2021, the turf academy contains classrooms, a canteen, a mechanics workshop, and a laboratory. 
It's a brand new training facility, one of the most, in our opinion, <laughs> one of the most elite in Europe in terms of the technology that's within the buildings and the, the facilities that we offer to our team. We're one of the first, well, we are the first of its kind in the world. So there's nothing ever been done before. And, you know, we are here for the industry. We're here to elevate our position within just, you know, people leaving school and see it as a realistic career. Um, and for us, the Sports Academy is about just being ahead of the curve all the time. That's John Ledwidge, head of sports turf and grounds, who joined Leicester in 2014. At 27, he was one of the youngest head groundsmen in the Football League. The Foxes were a championship club, and John's aim was to become a Premier League groundsman by the time he turned 30. Improbably, by the time his 30th birthday came around, the club were Premier League champions. Premier League champions 2016, the amazing Leicester City! For John, it was time to target the next level of his ambitions, and Leicester's revolutionary sports turf academy was born. We bought a 180-acre golf course, and we developed right through the middle of it. From an inspirational point of view, my, my view with the sports turf academy is I wanted to give people a real destination to come to, to learn and to develop. The first floor dining hall leads out onto a balcony overlooking the entire training ground. It's a far cry, from some of the dingy sheds and outhouses that usually form the basis of a ground staff HQ. You know, if we're going to build this reputation, try and get people into the industry, not many people, unless they've got a genuine interest in what we do, would like to sit and have their lunch on an old sofa that's been dragged out of someone's house next to an irrigation pump, and, you know, there's mice running around on the floor. So we've created a really inspirational place, an aspirational place. John intends for the academy to become a gold standard in the training and education of ground staff. His ethos positions a football pitch as a club's most important resource, one that should aid, protect, and maximize its prized talents. The thing that I learned the most is, is that one of the most valuable assets to a club is its pitch. Now, be that for protecting the players, be the fact that, you know, the, the largest asset at a football club are the players. And what they do on a daily basis is train and operate on something that you're producing. You know, for me, we are we are a cog in a, a big machine, but I think we're quite an important one. Um, and I will say that, obviously, because I'm biased, but you know, I do think that we, when you look at what the players train on, um, they probably do up to about 80, 90% of their work on our pitches. Um, and I think it's important that we embrace the understanding of what's going on underneath our feet. When John joined Leicester, he was in charge of a team of six people. Today, that number is 52. It includes 18 ground staff, 10 gardeners, four greenkeepers, four mechanics, a head of sports science, and a doctor. We've actually, in the Turf Academy, we've got a doctor in, in-house. So a doctor of sports turf, yes, that exists, believe it or not. We've got our fully spec laboratory there, um, and obviously our doctor, Dr. Jonathan Knowles, who is not just a you know crazy scientist, but he's also runs Sports Turf Academy business model for us as well. But he's been a godsend in terms of just how quickly we can react to things. So, for example, it's a little bit like if you were to take a, a blood sample. You know, if you had someone in your house that could analyse your blood within five minutes and give you a diagnosis, you'd take it. And that's exactly what we do. We take samples from our pitches. If we're having issues, if we're having, you know, without going into too much agronomy, but, you know, if we have got an issue with disease or something's crept in that we, we don't want in there, um, he can take it in the lab, analyse it very quickly, and we can make quick decisions. With football guidelines much stricter today, the old tricks of the trade, like those employed by Barnsley and Stoke, are no longer possible. 
The entire pitch must be watered equally and visiting managers must be informed when the sprinklers will be on. Pitch dimensions have also been standardised. Unless a stadium layout prevents it, all Premier League pitches must now align with UEFA's guidelines. 105 metres by 68 metres. The maximum grass length is now 30 millimetres and the entire pitch must be cut to the same height. We don't do that sort of thing anymore because we're looking for our home advantage to be to suit our style of play. And typically across the Premier League um, and typically across probably most of the football league, there's, they yearn for a style of play. It's, it's one of the days of lumping it up top um, and sort of trying to play it down the wings and just having those stereotypical ways of playing. You know, most managers want fast pace on the floor, attractive football. And we're there to basically facilitate that. While Wenger and co will be happy, this homogenisation of grounds and pitches hasn't diminished the influence and effectiveness of ground staff. If anything, it's pushed them into proving their worth in more high-tech ways. So yeah, we are hopefully offering those marginal gains in our area um, and having as much control over our areas as possible to make sure that the players have got the best possible surfaces, not just aesthetically, which is what everybody looks at, and I always call it like the icing on the cake, you know, the nice the stripes and the lines are the icing on the cake. Everything else, the science and the technology and the reaction that the players have to the surface goes on below that. It means that at Leicester, they know the exact firmness required for their quickest striker to hit top speed. Here's Vardy. Leicester quickly up the other end. Okazaki in the box. Vardy! His scoring spree continues. Or conversely, how soft the pitch should be for the defenders to be able to catch the opposition. The trick is to find the perfect balance that matches the team's strengths. But a more senior player may prefer a pitch that has a bit more give. But you have a fast-paced centre-forward who wants it to be as firm as possible so they get what they call their top loads out of the pitch um, so that they can reach the ball that bit quicker. Because I liken it to if you're, if you're on a beach and you're on the bit where the water's been and the, the sand is firm, you can run all day on that. But if you go on the sand that is dry, it just drains you instantly. But again, we've been sort of trying to work with our medical team to understand what causes that fatigue and, and where the players sort of sit sweetly that balances everybody. And we're never going to get to the point where the pitch is manipulated because people move all over the pitch in different areas. But what we can do is deliver an element of consistency across 99% of the surface that suits 99% of our players. But we have a massive bearing on the outcome of that. You know, if we don't get the moisture right, we don't get the water levels right, we don't get the height of cut right, it could almost kill a game. It literally could just kill the game. As is common with ground staff in the UK, John works closely with the manager and coaching staff when it comes to tailoring the pitch to their preferences. We know what he likes and he knows he trusts and respects us anyway for, our, for what we do. Um, but we'll always ask what they want. It's about giving them an advantage to their playing style rather than trying to trip the opponent up. Arguably John's most famous innovation, though, were his pitch patterns. At around the same time as Leicester's Premier League win, their staggeringly intricate pitch designs were making him the most famous groundsman in the world. From circles and stars to zigzags and eye-catching 3D effects, Leicester's pitches mystified fans, and even some fellow grounds managers. Sometimes I get, you know, people recognise me as the patterns guy or whatever it might be, um, and I get, trust me, I have plenty of bloody stick for that as well. But I sort of saw an opportunity that, listen, we needed to raise the profile of our industry. We are heading towards winning the Premier League, which is the biggest underdog story on planet Earth and still is to this day. And I just saw an opportunity to expose our industry 
even if it is the fluff on the top, but it still gets people talking now and it still gets people relating to, or just even doing a little bit more digging on what we do. Traditionally, the contrasting light and dark green lines on a pitch are created by simply mowing the grass one way and returning the other, using string to mark out the route. But John and Leicester were taking this to new levels. At one point, they even designed the Leicester City badge across the whole pitch. It was so good, it prompted interest from outside of the sport. We were approached by a film producer, I think it was, um, about uh, Phil Collins was doing, I think it was Tea in the Park or, or some concert. And the visualisation that they had is that they wanted him to start his set on the grass and basically as they zoomed up, he'd be stood in the middle of his face that had been printed on the grass. As it transpired, I think obviously with you know, the cost associated to it and the time and this, that and the other, it just didn't materialise. But yeah, it was there. It was an interesting phone call to say the least. With his Turf Academy leading the way, John is keen to stress that today's ground staff are more than red faces with dirty fingernails. They are also experts in agronomy, meteorology, business and technology. The stereotype is the grumpy groundsman, is the, oh, get off my pitch, you can't play on here, you can't do that. And all that causes is confrontation, all that causes is lack of respect. So the way that we've tried to engage and enable people to use our pitches, but use them in the right way and educate them towards the reason why we might say, can you go here, can you not use the goal mouth, can you do this, has helped us, you know, we've sort of attacked that front on. And even if there's an injury, we won't go and hide under a rock and hope that no one says it or it could be the pitch. If, if I see someone injured, I'll say, go to our sports science guys and say, look, is there anything reading on the pitch that you think that may have contributed to that? I don't go and just disappear and sort of bury my head in the sand. And so we come back to Tony. Despite having more than a decade on John, he's not as mired in the old school as you might have first thought. Sure, he's had some feisty scrapes in the past, but he's also been keen to keep pace with the future. And he's got a lot more in common with the new generation of grounds managers than you might first expect. Progress is is that, is that you're moving forward all the time. If you're progressing, everything's getting better, isn't it? The thing now is how do we how do we become more sustainable? Technology-wise, I mean Britain's out there in it as one at best. You know, we're we're even leading Americans. What we've been doing for, for 10 years now, Americans have only been doing for a couple of years. Tony's knowledge of hybrid pitches can rival that of any of the leading grounds managers in Europe. It's what earned him the top job at France's stunning sporting home. But as we know, it can be a ruthless business. And to stay in the job for over four years, Tony needed to know more than just the science. And this is where some hardy Oakwell grit came in handy. From being in football in 2001, I've always spoke to the manager directly. Apart from Fabio Capello, when I had to go everything through bloody liaison officer. But other than that, everything was through manager. And then when Fabio went and, and Roy came in with Gary Neville, it was straight back direct line to manager and Gary. Because that's at nearly every level in every football club, that's how it works. Which is exactly what he told his new French colleagues when national manager Didier Deschamps arrived at the stadium. When Didier first came to the stadium and they're telling me, you've got to get off, you can't talk to him because it's forbidden. And it's like, well, not really, because you've got to talk to the guy to find out what he wants and what you need to deliver for him. Oh, no, no, Tony, no, he's not allowed. He's forbidden, he's forbidden. I'm like, yeah, yeah, fuck off. I'm going to see him now. <laughs> so I walk across to Didier and I say, 
How, how do you want me to address your boss, Gaffer? He says, oh, call me boss. I'm like, right, boss, what do you want? What do you want me to deliver? And he, he said, short and wet. So I'm like, yeah, 24, wet. It's what I've been doing for England. And he's like, ah, so you are the English guy. I said, yeah, I'm the English guy. I expect good things. And I said, yeah, I'll try and deliver for you. And then, of course, our party, not the team, but I, I produced playing surfaces to get him to, to World Cup, which they went, went on to win. France are the champions of the world. The language barrier let the occasional mishap at the beginning of Tony's tenure. One of his first jobs was to transition the pitch from rugby to football, adjusting the line markings accordingly. So my first game in, in Paris were rugby. So we had his rugby game, and obviously we had to get rid of lines. So I said, oh, I need, a, I need a knapsack sprayer. A knapsack sprayer is essentially a backpack with a spray nozzle. It can be used to spray everything from soap to fertiliser to weed killer. Tony, in broken frongly, wanted assurances that none of the latter had been in the sprayer. So the number one question, what was the last thing in this sprayer? No, don't worry, Tony, don't worry. There's not been any weed killer in. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks later, you lying bastard. <laughs> the translation failure was all too apparent. He had inadvertently killed parts of his brand new Stade de France pitch. And worst of all, the football match he was preparing for was the opening game of Euro 2016. 5, 10, 40 metre halfway line, tees and dashes up to halfway line in the north side were dead. And not only dead on the line, obviously because I've been pressure washing and there's overspray, you get two metres of dead. And it's like, oh shit, we've got Euros coming up, it's going to be visible for Euros, it's going to look an absolute shitter. Thanks to Grassmaster, the dead portions of the pitch could be swiftly receded and grow back in time for the big kickoff. But that wouldn't solve every problem, because the newer grass would be a completely different shade of green to the rest of the pitch. An error that would be easily spotted on TV. The pitch that we, we had stitched were a two-year-old turf pitch. So it were mature, older grasses in it. And then you put three-week-old brand new stuff in, it's nice and luminous green and totally different to what you've already got. As a month-long host to Europe, the Stade de France pitch was meant to showcase the best of what French football had to offer. Instead, its pitch was set to look like the distressed face of an acne-riddled teenager. But Tony had a plan. Let's call it the just-for-men treatment. We got a, a, a product called Green Launcher, which is a green dye, and then a little bit of chemistry pitch side, lit, putting, a, putting some in, mixing it up, putting some in, mixing it up, testing it against pitch. Ooh, that's a bit too green, a bit more water, a bit more of this. And then I got to the point where it was 300 ml of green launcher to 20 litres of water, and you never knew. <laughs> so I was doing that every night when everybody had left after training, about half 11 at night, walking up and down with knapsack, covering it, spraying it in. When building were empty and nobody knew it was going off. One of the reasons Tony had to paint the pitch green every night was because it had rained every day in Paris since the Euros began. The June rain had been so persistent that it had caused the River Seine to flood. Only two matches at the Stade de France had seen dry conditions. The opening game and the final. The unusual climate led to an unseasonal infestation, which, 
brings us back to those moths and Gary Lineker's accusation. Six years later, Tony is keen to set the record straight. So, Gary, it weren't us that left the lights on because we weren't in control of turning lights on and off. <laughs> the reason for the moths is because there was so much rain that month. I mean, it rained every day. And uh, they'd not had a chance to watch out. So, obviously, it was so wet and, and cooler. As soon as it got to that night at, at training at final, it, we even we were like, where the bloody hell are all these moths coming from? And it turns out, because it was so cold and, and damp, they'd not hatched out over the month. And then as soon as it, were, it warmed up enough, boom, everything hatched at once. So then you end up with a million bloody moths. It weren't only it weren't only at Stade de France. It were across Paris. I mean, when I was going to my flat, they were everywhere, just moss everywhere. And there were some big ones, as you saw what attacked Cristiano Ronaldo. And as for the match itself, well, the moths lasted longer than Cristiano Ronaldo, who limped off in tears after 25 minutes. But they eventually flew off and allowed the football to do the talking. Unfortunately for the hosts, that talking was in Portuguese. But at least when Portugal lifted their first European Championship trophy, they did so on a pitch that looked as good and as green as it did on the opening day. And all that was thanks to the astute work of one Yorkshire groundsman. When I went to France, the, uh, the CEO of Stade de France, I was trying to explain what, what, what Silica does, and she's like, I don't get it. I says, it's Viagra for grass. I get that one. <laughs> So while John innovates at Leicester, Tony's focus these days is on nurturing the next generation, equipping them with the savviness and resilience required to keep pace with the demands of today's top sporting stadia. For whether on 1980s cow fields or Premier League carpets, Tony has grown more blades of grass than there are visible stars in the sky. Like a hybrid grassmaster pitch, he blends tried and tested methods with new age execution. And he's already begun the process of passing that knowledge on, at home and abroad. His attentive French assistants in Paris went on to manage the grounds at Bordeaux, Nice and Strasbourg. And now that he's back in the UK, he works as a mentor and consultant for grounds teams in London, including Charlton, West Ham and Fulham, all of whom are privileged to learn from one of the best in the business. You know, I've been at Charlton now, it's been a year now since I've been coming here. And bringing young John on, he's doing a good job. I've been over at London Stadium, helping James bring his deputies on and, and a couple of other lads. And fortunately, I've been taking on at Fulham more as a consultancy role than mentoring. But as, as Declan said to his lads, listen, Tony Stones is here. He knows a little bit. If you need help, talk to him. And although he has graced and grown the blessed turfs in Wembley and the Stade de France, Tony now finds himself back where he began it all using his experience with the elite to create better sports services for the rest of us mere mortals. I've just been accepted as a FA pitch inspector. So even, even local authority pitches or, or little small sports grounds, just nice to give something back because it's, it's, it's been a good industry for me and it's, it's given me a good life. Thank you for listening to Unsung. This episode was written and narrated by Alexis James. It was produced by me, Matt Cheney, and artwork is by Matt Walker. If you enjoyed the podcast, then be sure to get a copy of the new book, Unsung, Not All Heroes Wear Kits. 
written by Alexis. It's published by Pitch Publishing and is available from all of your favourite book outlets. Along with more from Tony, John and other ground staff, you'll be able to read never-before-told tales from Formula One mechanics, football interpreters, Olympic snowmakers, rugby medics, anti-doping officials and more from sports unheralded heroes. Head to unsungbook.com for more information. And finally, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about all future episodes. Until next time on Unsung.